That was the shortest scripture verse we've ever had anyone read here. You're like, wow, we got it easy today. Uh, that's good. Well, I'm so glad uh, to be here with you. Uh, my name is Cassie. Alex and I lead this church together and just glad that you chose to come and join us today. Uh, we're going to start off with a movie reference. I love that Alex talked about movies earlier because we're talking about movie reference. You forgot. Yeah, it's a surprise. Uh, anybody know the 1990 movie, now cult classic, Joe versus the Volcano? Any familiar? Ah, yeah, we've got some. Okay, so if you've watched this movie, you're already laughing and smiling because it is quite the treat. Uh, but for those who have not watched this movie, I'll give you, I'll fill you in on the details, okay? So the screen flickers on and the iconic Warner Brothers logo appears. And the orchestra tunes in the background, just like any normal movie. However, if you guessed from the title, this is not a normal movie. The orchestra is called to attention, and a fairy tale tune begins to play, and the following words flash on the screen, once upon a time, there was a guy named Joe. And just as we tuck in for a good Meg Ryan, right, Tom Hanks love story, the next screen appears and says, who had a very lousy job. And the bizarre adventure begins. The 1955 Tennessee Ernie Ford song entitled 16 Tons, which if you haven't listened to it, you should go listen to it, uh, begins to play as the main character, Joe, steps out of his drab car into a puddle. His shoes are soaking wet, and as he walks to his lousy job, we see a parking lot full of mud and trash. Depressed people are shuffling toward a drab, prison-esque industrial building that we learn makes some pretty unfortunate medical supplies, which I will not reference here. Keeping things PG, you can go look that up. Uh, the only bit of color that we get in this entire scene is one singular daisy sprouting up from the mud. And immediately it's crushed by a woman's gray high heel shoe. Enter Joe's lousy office, and we learn that he works in the administrative side of this company. With a broken coat rack, buzzing, flickering fluorescent lights, an obnoxious boss, and God forbid, horrible coffee. With like that clumpy creamer, you know, that gets, oh, so gross. It's like our worst office job nightmare come to life. And it's very apparent that Joe hates his job. And to make matters worse, within the first 15 minutes of the film, we learn that he's suffering from brain cloud after he's been feeling puffy, blotchy, never seems to have much energy, and keeps getting those little sore throats in the back of his throat. And the doctor reveals that because he has this brain cloud, he's going to feel great for four to five months, and then he will die. Sharp left turn. But don't fear, Joe's story actually has a very happy ending. In fact, this eminent death liberates Joe. And you could say this is the part of the film where Joe comes alive, where black and grays turn to oranges and pinks, where fluorescent lights turn into sunshine, where depression turns into this insatiable joy and this thirst for adventure. Spoiler, Joe lives. You'll have to watch the movie to find out how. But Joe versus the Volcano is not just a commentary on our acceptance of death, but it's also a scathing critique of the work culture that we willingly participate in 
all the time. A culture in which people are machines, we decide that we were made to work, and hurry and hustle are our most prized possessions. Think about when somebody asked you last, how was your week? What do you say? Really busy, right? Portrays a lot about our very core and identity, the thing we prize the most. And although we could point the finger at culture, companies, capitalism, or Jeff Bezos, at the end of the day, many of us have done this to ourselves. We've become obsessed with work. If I can just get more done, I will get that promotion. Or if I could just make more money, I could buy the bigger house or a house, right, if you're a millennial. Uh, or if I can just keep pushing through to retirement, then I will rest. More work, more hustle, more busy, more brain cloud. And the question remains, what do we do about our never-ending desire to have more, to work more, to be defined by our work, to become our lousy jobs? Well, the answer is not to jump into a volcano as Joe did, so please don't go try that at home. But in the Christian tradition, our response is Sabbath. And we'll learn today that Sabbath is not a chore that binds us, but a practice that actually frees us. And so, as Alex mentioned last week, we are currently in the Easter season. Easter actually lasts for 40 days, just as Lent lasted for 40 days. And so, just as we pursue God in the valley for 40 days together prior to Easter, we pursue God in the celebration of Easter resurrection for 40 days. And thus, as a church community, we are in a series entitled Practicing the Resurrection, Practicing the Resurrection. And here are a few things to keep in mind as we journey through this series together. Number one, our God defeated death. Our God defeated death. The central message of our faith is that Jesus died, was buried, and came back to life physically in the flesh. Like he walked around. God defeated death and all of the things that come with it. Number two, Easter is everything. It's more than just a day or a celebration of spring. Easter is the very climax of our Christian story and faith. It's God's invitation to belong to a new world, a new kingdom, a new way of living. And thus, we practice resurrection. These are the words of Eugene Peterson, and he writes this about this practice. He says, the practice of resurrection is an intentional and deliberate decision to believe and participate in resurrection life, a life out of death, a life that trumps death, a life that is the last word, Jesus' life. Practicing the resurrection is living into the new kingdom, the new way of living that Jesus offers us. And so as a church, we are practicing resurrection, specifically through six practices. One last week, wonder, that's what we started with. And then today, Sabbath, which is our next resurrection practice. Sabbath, or Shabbat in the Hebrew, simply means stopping, delighting, and worshiping. 
stopping, delighting, and worshiping. And it runs as a theme throughout the Old Testament all the way into the New Testament. And so as we often do here at Midtown Church, we're going to start in Genesis and work through the unified story of the Scripture to learn what Sabbath looks like, to understand that Sabbath practice. So beginning with Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, through chapter 2, verse 3, a few selections. Moses writes this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps. We learn that God creates man and woman and then in verse 28, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Moving on, verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Verse 2, and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work of creation. And so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because he had rested from his work and all of the work done in creation. The first thing that we learn from this account is that the actual act itself of work is not bad. Like work itself is not bad. Work originates from God and God gives it to us before the fall of man ever happens, before humanity ever screws up. God desired for humanity to partner with him, to collaborate with him in running the world. Work is good. He wants Adam and Eve to plant gardens, multiply, harvest, eat, hunt for food. Work is not the problem. Overwork is. Work is not the problem. Overwork is. More on that in a moment. The second thing we notice is God himself rested and delighted in his creation. This fact reveals less about God's stamina, which we do know to be infinite, and it reveals a whole lot more about God's character. For a God who submits himself humbly to rest is the type of God I want to serve. For a God who rests is a God who gives rest. The third thing that we notice is that Adam and Eve's first day on earth was not spent working. It was resting. He made them on the sixth day, and on the seventh day, they rested together. You know, I think we often think of rest as some sort of reward for all of the hard work that we have done. But that's not what rest looks like in God's economy Sabbath is not a reward. Sabbath is a gift. And it does not come after work. It precedes work and it enables work. It reveals something about our very soul and the identity that God placed inside of us. He does not simply just see us as workers, but he sees us as his children who he wants to rest and play. I think that this dispels that cultural narrative that says, I'll rest when I finish everything. Or I'll rest when I'm dead. You were meant for rest. 
It's part of your identity. Continuing on in the story of Scripture, we see humanity sever their connection with God. They decide that they can do it better on their own. And as a result, the Israelite people, descendants of Adam and Eve, um, strike out on their own, do a whole, a whole lot of bad things. Uh, and they end up getting oppressed and enslaved by Egypt. We learn in Exodus chapter 5 that Pharaoh, the leader of the Egyptian people, is a very harsh dictator. Excuse me. He's a production manager with very high expectations. His schedules are inexhaustible, and it seems like he has an insatiable thirst for more, more, more more. So much so that historians um, and archaeologists know that the Egyptians actually had to build structures just to store all of their stuff. They didn't have enough space to put all of the stored food, the stored bricks, the stored construction supplies. There was just a need to have more. A few examples of this from Exodus chapter 5, several verses here. Pharaoh says, why are you taking the people away from their work? Get to your labors. Hurry up. Get to it. This is the boss that says, why are you taking a break? Come on, let's go. Eight hours. Verse 7 through 8, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as before. Let them go and gather straw for themselves, but you shall require of them the same quantity of bricks as they have made previously. Do not diminish it, for they are lazy. In other words, keep doing what you've been doing, and in your off time, go get the straw to do what you do from your nine to five, hence no rest from work. Time off equals laziness. Verse nine, let heavier work be laid on them, then they will labor at it and pay no attention to deceptive words. In other words, I want all of your attention. Verse 10 through 11, I will not give you straw. Go and get straw yourself wherever you can find it, but your work will not be lessened in the least. I'm not letting up on that deadline. Verse 14, why do you not finish the required quantity of bricks yesterday and today as you did before? Verse 17 through 19, you are lazy, 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 says Pharaoh. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work, for no straw will be given to you, but you shall still deliver the same amount of bricks. Taking a break to worship God is laziness. That's what Pharaoh says. The work described here is one of a very oppressive man whose restlessness and desire for Nor crushes the people of Israel. Remember, work itself is not a problem, but overwork is. And it's safe to assume as people are being enslaved for no money that we've got a problem here. This is never what God intended for his Israelite people. This is never what he intended for us. And friends, Egypt is very much alive and well today. And I don't mean that as in the literal country. Yes, Egypt still exists. I mean that in the culture, right? Whether it's the never-ending hamster wheel of production or consumption or modern-day slavery, God did not intend this for us. And he did not intend this for the Israelite people, which is why God rescues them 
He rescues them from Egypt through a man named Moses and leads them into the wilderness with the ultimate destination of the promised land. And as they're on their way there, they're given the Ten Commandments. There's a little lot of other things that happen too. They get stuck there for a while, but we won't get into that. Uh, But the utterance of these Ten Commandments themselves actually begins with a reference to Pharaoh and to Egypt. The remembrance of their enslavement and inhumane ways in which they were treated provides both the context and the urgency for a new set of rules, a new way of living from God to the people. Notice that God actually situates most of these commands in what we would know today as the art of neighboring. He reframes the way in which they are to be living around the concept of neighboring. Six of those ten commandments deal specifically with neighbor. Think about it. Honor your father and mother, right? Be a good neighbor to your family. You shall not murder. Last time I checked, you can't be a good neighbor and murder your neighbor simultaneously. It doesn't work. You shall not commit adultery. This is the gravest sin against your spouse or neighbor. You shall not steal. If you love your enemy, you will not steal from them. In fact, you willingly share, right? You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Good neighbors don't lie and gossip about one another. You shall not covet your neighbor's possessions. Again, amongst neighbors, there is no envy. There is no comparison. There is only giving and sharing and love. And this is probably why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 22 that all the law and prophets can hang on to commands. Love God, which is the other six commandments, right? And love your neighbor. Okay, why does this matter, right? When we're talking about Egypt, now we're talking about neighboring. How does this relate to Sabbath? Because in Egypt, there were no neighbors. There were only threats. There were only competitors. How do you love your neighbor when you exist in the profound anxiety of the Egyptian economy? Where you consume all the food that can possibly be given to you because there's very little. Where you do not freely give that away because it's all I've got. When you're so consumed by brick quotas and your own safety that you can't even fathom to know who lives next door. When someone else's success means an increased quota for you. Pharaoh's enterprise made it impossible to be a good neighbor. And maybe this is why the commandment given the most airtime in the Ten Commandments is the Sabbath. A commandment that deals not just with loving God, but actually also with loving neighbor. Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or your sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is within them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. 
God looks at Pharaoh's system, at his economy, where there is no Sabbath, there is no stoppage, there is no break, and he does away with it. In the words of Walter Brueggemann, there are now limits to how much and how long slaves must produce bricks. Because there is Sabbath, there are now limits to how much food Pharaoh can store and consume and administer. Because of Sabbath, this new limit, we actually set our weekly work around a pause that breaks the production cycle. And those who participate in it break the anxiety cycle. They are invited into awareness that life does not consist in frantic production and consumption that reduces everyone to threat and competitor. And as the work stoppage permits a waning of anxiety, so energy is redeployed to the neighborhood. The odd insistence of a God of this, or sorry, excuse me, of the God of Sinai is a counter-anxious productivity with committed neighborliness. The latter practice does not produce so much, right? Being a good neighbor doesn't always produce all of the goods, but it does create an environment of security, respect, and dignity that redefines the human project changes the very nature and way in which we live. See, the Ten Commandments tell a story of liberation, whereby God frees the Israelites from anxious productivity, from lousy jobs, and commits them to neighborliness through the practice of Sabbath. And this makes me wonder... How much of our culture's current isolationism and fear of neighbor could be solved by Sabbath practice? Like, can you imagine a world in which people slowed down long enough to meet the person that lived next door? A world in which we worked out of rest, not for rest. How would that change the way in which we interact with our coworkers, our neighbors, our spouses, our families? Will we be more patient, more loving, more kind? See, Sabbath has the potential to accomplish much for humanity and this world. This is probably why Jesus said in Mark chapter 2, verses 27 through 28, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Or in other words, the Sabbath is not a commandment that enslaves us, but one that frees us from slavery and encourages love of God and neighbor. The Sabbath is not a commandment given by a productivity-obsessed Pharaoh, but a God who rested himself. The Sabbath is not a reward for the rat race, but a commandment that sits at the very identity and our very likeness in God, something that we were quite literally made for. In the words of author Rich Philotus, the brilliance of Sabbath is not so much in Sabbath keeping, but Sabbath keeping us. It's not so much in Sabbath keeping, 
the do's or don'ts, the rights versus wrong, the list of things I'm supposed to do or not do. It's in Sabbath keeping us, forming us, shaping us, changing us, making us better neighbors to the world. If we continue on in the Exodus account, we get to the book of Deuteronomy. And the people are preparing to actually enter the promised land from the wilderness. A long period of time has gone gone by. Most of the generation that was rescued out of Egypt has now passed. And so Moses stops at the Jordan River to remind the people of the law. And thus, the book of Deuteronomy, which is 30 chapters. Can you imagine if that's the type of sermon I gave? 30 chapters worth. That would be a long sermon. Uh, But it's been a while, right, since they first heard that. And so Moses wants to remind them, not just of the law, but what they came from, of God's new economy. And he says, this covenant which I gave you was not just good for the wilderness, it's good for right here in the promised land. As you enter a rich and prosperous land flowing with milk and honey, occupied by people who live very different lives and serve very different gods, he warns them, don't conform, don't become the oppressed again, or don't become an oppressor. Live in God's economy. And Moses' greatest hope is that the Israelite people's lives would become a testimony. That they would demonstrate to people who were far from God what Yahweh, God's economy, looked like. They would reveal to the Canaanites who worshipped gods who effectively oppressed and enslaved them what it looked like to serve a God who freed them. He hopes that they reveal a God who does not require work to get good things, but one who just freely gives rest. A God who designed his very people for rest. A God who freed his people from an economy of bricks, production, and accumulation into one of Sabbath. My question today is, could the practice of Sabbath itself become a testimony to our culture today? Could it become a testimony to our coworkers, our friends, our family of a different way that we live? Could we, as bosses and influencers in our community, give people, our employees, Sabbath rest? Imagine what that would do for the immigrant family or the single mom. Could it be that part of the gospel, the good news we share, that we are no longer slaves, right, but we are part of an economy of rest? Could that be part of our gospel, our good news? That on the first day of life, we rested. Interestingly enough, when we look at the resurrection account as we did last Sunday, we see that the first participants in the resurrection had just spent the previous day keeping Sabbath. On Friday evening, shortly after Joseph of Arimathea took Jesus down from the cross and put him in a tomb Jesus' Jewish disciples would have lit two candles. One lit for the Exodus command to remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. And the other lit to remember the Deuteronomy command. To observe the Sabbath and remember their exodus from Egypt. 
And I wonder, as they submitted themselves to the Sabbath practice, even in the midst of their horror, their grief, their disillusionment at losing their Savior, Jesus, if they were reminded of God's larger story. They were reminded of a God who had freed them from slavery, from Egypt, and had given them a new economy, a new way of living. A God that would do that for them again. Even if it didn't look the way they thought it did. And thus, could it be because of this Sabbath rest, this stopping, delighting, and worshiping that they were able to believe, wonder, and marvel in Christ's resurrection the next day? Like God came through, as I knew he would. In our lives, I think Sabbath could be the answer to cultivating that resurrection wonder that Alex spoke of last week. Eugene Peterson writes this. He says, Sabbath is not primarily about us or how it benefits us. It is about God and how God forms us. It is not in the first place about what we do or don't do. It's about God completing and resting and blessing and sanctifying And these are all things that we don't know much about, right? The Paul quote, I do the very thing I don't want to do. We don't know much about how to get this thing inside of us to change. They are beyond us. However, these things are not beyond our recognition, our understanding that they're there, or our participation, right? The desire to take one step further. Sabbath does, however, require that we stop, that we are quiet long enough to see open-eyed with wonder, resurrection wonder. That is what the Sabbath is all about. Worship team, if you would join me. So the question remains, what does Sabbath look like? For us living here, right, post-resurrection, trying to live in the way of Jesus, what does this look like? I'm going to break this down for you using those three words, stop, delight, and worship. And then I'll give you an example at the end as to how Alex and I live this out. So first, Sabbath in its most basic form is setting aside a 24-hour period to stop, delight, and worship. Number one, stop. We stop our work. This is the key, both paid and unpaid. We stop our work, both paid and unpaid. This looks very different for each and every one of us because we are all very different people. You know, I actually enjoy, maybe I'm weird, but I actually enjoy folding laundry and like listening to a podcast. It brings me great joy. Uh, But if you are a mom of five kids, you're like, no. I don't want to do that. That sounds like a nightmare, right? The never-ending turbulence that is laundry. And so you have to work to define for yourself and or your family what this stopping looks like. Like, is it a nap, a walk, reading? You have to define what does work look like for us. Is laundry work? Is grocery shopping work? Is exercise work or is exercise rest? You have to set some guiding principles for this stoppage. 
And this will take some trial and error, probably several Sabbaths to figure out. But the more you do it, the more you learn not only about yourself, but the ways in which you stop. You're able to recognize God makes space for Jesus. Pastor Rich Velotis says this, Sabbath moves us from production to presence. Sabbath is not just a rest from making things. It is a rest from making something of ourselves. What is production? What is presence? Number two, the light. N.T. Wright suggests that heaven or the kingdom of Jesus revealed here on earth could very much look like each and every one of us getting to fully live into the hobbies that don't make enough money and we never have enough time for. And I wonder if Sabbath is but like a brief foretaste of what that looks like. To get to spend a 24-hour period, right, just doing the things that like we love the most. For me, I, it's baking. I love to bake. I'm never going to be a good enough baker because I don't have enough time for it. But on Sabbath, I get the practice. Is it hiking for you, enjoying nature, cooking, playing pickleball, knitting, building things with your hands? What brings you delight? Number three, worship. We anchor ourselves in the giver of the Sabbath gift. We likely hear God more clearly as we've cleared away the clutter that exists in our life. As we put away the to-do list, as we've stopped the interruptions, as we put away our phone, as we stop playing video games, stop binge-watching Netflix, we're not grocery shopping. We're not trying to do a Zoom call while we're driving in a car. As we've stopped multitasking, we find that there's more silence, more quiet, more contemplation, more time to just let your mind think through all those things that you never think about. Maybe that's why every time you sit down to pray, you're thinking through all those things, right, that you've never thought through or you haven't thought through before because you're just never taking a Sabbath rest. You don't have that time for silence or just the regular sitting that helps us sift through all of that stuff in our mind. Sabbath very much becomes a space to be present with God. And oddly enough, it really fosters a sense of gratitude. So you've got a 24-hour period to do like the things you love. Don't get me wrong, this all sounds really beautiful, but Sabbath is actually really hard. First of all, you literally have to plan your entire week around it. You have to plan to do it. To plan to do the grocery shopping on a different day, you have to plan to do all of that cleaning another time, to mow the lawn, to clean the gutters, to whatever it is, you have to plan your life, your week, around taking Sabbath. And additionally, I know this from experience, when you start doing Sabbath, it kind of feels like detox from a very powerful drug. Like, the temptation to check your email is so real. That, like, sense of just boredom and restlessness at times can just be so frustrating. 
But slowly and surely, as you begin to practice the Sabbath over years and years and years, you find that it becomes so easy. And that maybe it might just change and transform the rest of your life. Walter Brueggemann says this, people who keep Sabbath live all seven days differently. Remember, Sabbath is not a chore that binds us, but it is a gift freely given to us. And my simple invitation to you today is to incorporate this Sabbath practice into your weekly rhythm. For Alex and I, we started embarking on the practice of Sabbath probably, I don't know, five years ago, around there. Uh, and it took like two years to figure it out. <laughs> Full honesty. It took about two years to figure it out. Now the last three years, it's like, wow, this is great. Uh, for us, we usually do it Sunday night through Monday night. Uh, obviously, we work Sunday morning, so that doesn't work super well for us. So we do Sunday night to Monday night. And on Sunday evening, we usually go for a walk after a wonderful Sabbath nap, right? We read and eat a cookie skillet usually. I'll make one of those up in the oven. Got a little cast iron. It's great. Uh, we'll usually hang out with family. We've got a wonderful family in town. And then Monday morning, we sleep in. We wake up. We make some breakfast together. And we spend some time first thing in the morning reading scripture, uh, praying. Sometimes we do that together. Sometimes we do it separately. Sometimes we do a little bit of both. We usually read. We take a walk talk through our highs and our lows of that week. Sometimes we'll watch a movie in the afternoon or take a nap before we make dinner together. And we usually end by reading a favorite book and talking through our week. And our Sabbath has come, come uh, to be known something that we look forward to every single week. It's like, yes, it's Sabbath. We joke that um, Sundays after church, it feels like our Fridays. It's like, ah, oh, yes, here we go. Time for rest. And it's become a practice, like Walter Brueggemann said, that has transformed all seven days. We found that in the midst of much trial, frustration, insecurity, fear, becomes a space for wonder and excitement and processing and dreaming once again. We found that it transforms the way we work the way we pastor, the way in which we're neighbors. It's made us better Jesus followers, better friends, better spouses, better coworkers. It's freed us from a culture that so often binds us in brick production. And we've also found it to be a testimony to those around us. It's actually, I just had started preparing for this sermon about two weeks ago, and I had a student at UMKC, I teach public speaking there, come up to me and say, um, hey, I have a question for you. It's not related to the class. They know that I'm a pastor. I don't talk about my faith much in class, public education, but they know I'm a pastor. And so he came up to me afterwards. He says, I have a question. It doesn't really relate to school, but I just, I, I want to know. And I said, okay, what? He said, how do you find so much joy and contentment in your life? It's because I've just been really sad and I haven't been able to shake my lack of contentment for the last couple years. And it was the coolest opportunity because I got to sit there and talk to him about how Sabbath is the very place where God does that work in my heart and my life. 
Sabbath has the ability to be a testimony to a world around us who lives for work. After telling my student what we do for Sabbath, he said, wow, that sounds really peaceful. <laughs> I said, yeah, it is. It is really peaceful. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 through 11 says this. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. And here's my prayer for us today. Therefore, let us strive to enter that rest. Midtown, let us strive to enter that Sabbath rest. Let's pray. Jesus, you tell us that all who are weary and heavy laden can find rest in you. Lord, you take our yoke, you take our exhaustion, take an identity that rests and how well we do at this or that. You take it upon yourself and you freely give us rest. You're reminded that it's one of the very reasons we were created to rest in you. And God, I pray for those that may be sitting in this room who have not experienced that rest in a really long time who fear, feel tired and heavy laden and burdened and weary, Lord, may they find rest in you. God, I pray for this community, for our city, that the good news could start here through this practice that a group of people would emerge from this church who live radically different lives. For people in our workplaces, in the spaces in which we play and have activity, come to us and ask the question, how do you have so much joy and contentment? Why do you always look so at peace? and rested. Lord, may we not incorporate this good news just in our own life, but into the world around us. May it change all seven days. It's in your name we pray. listening to the Midtown Church Weekly Podcast. To find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church.